Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sail Faster series of podcasts. My name is Pete Boland, and I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm the skipper and owner of a J105 based in Annapolis. So in this series, we talk to those who spend their waking lives and probably their sleeping lives too, obsessing about how to sail faster than anyone else on the race course. We're going to find out how these top sailors got started in the sport, how they improved their performance over time, what they think about pre-race preparation, their favourite race strategies and tactics, their thoughts on crew management and pretty much everything else in between. And in doing so, maybe we can piece together thoughts on a winning formula for racing sailboats. Welcome to Sailfaster. Well, today it's our great privilege to welcome Doug Stryker to the Sailfaster podcast. Now, Doug's a highly accomplished sailor from the Annapolis area, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Doug is obsessed with how to make his J105 sail faster than anyone else's, as you're shortly going to hear. So Doug is nearly always at the front of the J105 fleet, despite being relatively new to the design. And I suppose that's not all that surprising, given that... Uh, he has some formidable achievements in windsurfing earlier in his sailing career, including he was a two-time winner of the U.S. Sailing Youth Championships and the Major Hall Trophy for windsurfing. He's a two-time U.S. Sailing Rolex Junior team member, and he represented the U.S. at the 1995 and 1996 Youth World Championships and the 1999 World University Summer Games. What's more... Doug was the 1995 Olympic Festival bronze medalist and a member of the U.S. national sailing team in 1998 and 1999. So a ton of uh, windsurfing um, achievements there that uh, once he switched to the less wobbly form of sailcraft, he also had tremendous success there. Most recently, um, Doug picked up the 2017 Healy Trophy for overall cruising one design. He was also the 2019 J30 North American champion and most recently won the 2022 Charles Day Trophy for best performance in in fleet. So a ton of achievements there. And uh, as I said earlier, Doug's always at or close to the front of the J105 fleet, which as you'll hear, he puts down to his own you know, deep knowledge of the J105 design his relentless preparation and a constant quest for improvement that he seems to gain both uh, by being on the water and also through learning from others on shore. And as, you, as you'll hear, he's really willing to share what's been working for him and his team, a formula that he puts into practice with considerable success. Doug, welcome to the Sailfaster podcast series. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate you asking me and uh, looking forward to uh, the chat a little bit about history and uh, you know, some of the unique things that uh, we've learned over the years on 105s and some of the other boats we sailed on. Thanks yeah, for asking. Great. I, I can't wait. So let, let, let's start. Let's kick off with history. So, um, you know, tell us, tell us about you. How, how did you get into sailing and, and perhaps specifically how did you get into racing? Yeah, uh, kind of an interesting story. Uh, I'll kind of start from, from the beginning. Uh uh, my grandparents had a cabin up at a, a lake in North Jersey, and my father learned how to sail at a young age, and I was lucky enough to still have the opportunity to have that cabin when I was super young and learned how to, uh, I guess, sail on a sunfish when I was like five or six years old. And my father had a Hobie cat and was fairly locally competitive in, in Hobie cat racing at the time. And he got rid of his Hobie cat. He had bad knees and he bought this 23 foot Columbia sailboat going from a 16 foot catamaran to a 23 foot Columbia was like, Oh my goodness, this is not going to be fun for my <laughs> seven year old son who loves to go surfing off the back of a, of a Hobie cat and you know, go 50 to 20 knots. So my dad is kind of foresight of saying, I really want my son to continue into sailing taught himself how to windsurf back in like 1985, mm. 86. And then once he learned, taught me how to windsurf. Um, and he's like, well, this will keep him into sailing because it's like Hobie cat sailing. It'll be fun. And and uh, ironically enough, at like, I don't know, seven, eight years old, I you know, was able to finally have enough weight to lift up a windsurfing sail and started windsurfing at a super young age. And it was awesome. Like you're your own captain and going fast and just slowly kind of took that from learning how to 
learning how to turn and learn how to drive and learn how to pick up a sail and, and, and uphaul it to start racing. So I started racing windsurfers when I was probably like, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. Yeah, the, the youngest kid out there who was always getting last place, but just loved the sport. And over time, uh, got more and more involved in, in windsurfing to the point where I had uh, I tried for the Olympics back in 1996 and 2000. Uh, you know, sailing in the Olympics is typically pretty tough to do. And windsurfing and most other of the sailing disciplines, it's one person that goes. Uh, Mike Gebhardt was the guy who went a number of times. I think he won a silver medal and a bronze medal. And uh, yeah, I think I got 10th in my first trials back in like 96. And then it was either fifth or sixth in 2000 was on the top five U.S. sailing team for a couple of years in between, uh, but really just got like super, super involved and loved the sport of windsurfing. Um, and, you know, did that until basically at the end of my college career where I was sitting there saying, do I continue to follow this road of some of my friends who are beach bums and seem to have a really good life <laughs> and a fun <laughs> life? Or do I finish college and get a job? Um, and no offense to Michael Gebhardt, who's had a wonderful career, but like I looked at Mike, who won two medals and said, yo, is that kind of the life that I want to lead? And I think he's chosen the life he wants to lead. And he lives in Cabarete and has a wonderful life. It just wasn't exactly what I was looking for. So I said, well, I'm going to finish up college and uh, finished up college. And uh, around that time, uh, a person at my club in New Jersey, Raritan Yacht Club, had a old or older Nelson Merrick, IOR, 36-foot kind of warhorse. And <laughs> he was the kind of guy who said, who realized when he grabbed the helm, he was not a good leader, right? He kind of lost his mind grabbing the helm and became a yeller. Um, <laughs> but he was really good at putting a team together. So he came to me when I was like, I don't know, 20 or 21 and said, I really need you to take over driving the boat. And I want you to kind of be the lead of the boat and you know, kind of help build the crew. And, you know, and, and I just had this great opportunity at the age of 21 for about eight years to, um, you know, to drive this guy's boat. But it really got, it taught me so much, right? Like I had this opportunity to sail on someone else's boat, didn't cost me a dime, but, you know, I was his partner in crime, right? Like all winter long, we were working on the boat to get it going and sand the bottom. So, I learned a lot about how to build a crew, how to, you know, find, find used sails to get us through a season and uh, how to make a bottom smooth and how to work on engines and, uh, and really just kind of learn what racing sailboats at a local fleet level was. Uh, so I had this great opportunity to do that. And then uh, about eight or nine years into that, I was probably late 20s, early 30s, uh, bought my first boat. It was a Santana 3030 kind of something that looks a little bit like a J29, raced perf in New Jersey for a few years. And then we moved to Annapolis. Uh, I There's a long story, which is for another day, of how I totaled uh, a J30 getting down here. Or sorry, totaled my, my uh, Santana 3030 getting down here, but moved to Annapolis, bought a J30, and uh, did that for about five years here and uh, had a lot of success in that fleet. And uh, then three and a half years ago, kind of looked at what other fleets were around and where were the more competitive divisions and the fleets that I thought were going to either sustain or grow. And the 105 class kind of jumped out at us and had a great opportunity to find a 105 and join the class a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting way to kind of get into the sport from a windsurfing background, but uh, kind of a fun way to do it. And it kind of worked my way from different angles of you know, other people's boats to my own boat. And yeah, I wouldn't have been able to ever own my own boat if I didn't have those years of learning from a really good friend who gave me an opportunity that most wouldn't have. Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing trajectory. And I, I've got to admit, I'm really jealous of a lot of that. That's, uh, I was very much a late starter in, in the sailing. The one thing I'll say is I never did bow. And uh, thank God I never did, because that was an excuse that I'll never do it. I'll never, I'll never do it, because yeah, I didn't do it when I was younger. So I, fortunately for me, I got to skip that bow spot. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I was also a big windsurfer in the 1980s in, uh, in Europe, um, usually in the frigging cold waters of the English Channel, which was pretty dreadful. Um, oh, yeah, a little chilly. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I taught windsurfing in, in Greece. We had a little windsurfing school in Greece for a few years. That was a lot of fun. But uh, but I, I always found it interesting about the link between windsurfing and sailing. Um, yep. I found it really hard on a windsurfer to sense wind shifts. Um, and you're going to tell me, no, it's easy. You don't have to know what you're doing. But I, I find it easier on a sailboat to sense wind shifts than I did on a on a windsurfer. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think wind shifts are are harder on a windsurfer, right? I mean, you know, bottom line, you know, you, you don't have the instruments. You're probably not, you know, staring at a horizon. Uh, you've got windsurfers going at various different speeds and angles compared to one design like we have today. Um, so I would agree with you. I think I, I think addressing those wind shifts are a little bit difficult. I would see that say though the one thing that I think I really learned a lot and, and probably what helps me today particularly is sailing downwind. You know, on a windsurfer, as you know, as you've done it before as well, right? Like you're either and I was racing like twelve foot longboards and in Mistral one designs, and you know, mm. in those conditions, you were either going dead downwind, going four to five miles an hour, right? Or you were finding a, a gust of wind and pulling the mass track back, putting the centerboard up and going 15 to 25. So mm. like, I, I think because of that, it kind of, there was a big focus going downwind about understanding the gusts, kind of seeing where those gusts are going and coming from and making sure that you're in those gusts, right? Because again, you're either flying downwind at 20 miles an hour or you're going nowhere. Um, so I, I personally find from a sailing perspective, sailboat perspective, that you know, I don't think windsurfing particularly enhanced my skills from an upwind perspective, but I definitely think from a downwind perspective, I just, you know, I was doing it for so long that, you know, I, it was just such a focus on making sure that you're always trying to figure out if you're in the wind and, or if you're headed or lifted downwind, um, you know, and, and downwind when you're on a plane, you, you, I think you definitely could feel a little bit more uh, or feel those shifts a little bit more than on an upwind side. Yeah, and then trying to trying to stay in when you're going downwind, trying to stay in that gust as it uh, as it comes comes by you. Exactly, which, which could be a catch twenty two, right? Because I do find myself from time to time like seeing that gust over on the right side, going, "Oh man, I got to get over there." <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you know, sometimes when you bang a corner, that's always not the best thing to do. So gonna have to rein that in every once in a while for my windsurfing days. <laughs> hey, hey, Doug, I'm interested in, in in when you think about the trajectory you were on, um, with a were there sort of moments or times when there was sort of a real step change in your performance where you did something or experienced something or changed something you thought, oh, that's just made me, uh, made my skills in, you know, whatever area. Uh, yeah. I'm actually just curious. I mean, from a windsurfing perspective, to be honest with you, it was pretty simple. It was time on the board, time on the water and time with good sailors, right? Like th there's, there's a big difference between going out and practicing with your buddies versus, yeah, there was a there was a place down in uh, uh, what was it down in Florida in uh, kind of near the Melbourne area where someone had a place on the water and a lot of international sailors went and windsurfing wasn't as big in the U.S. as it was in in Europe and other countries and really a lot of the better sailors uh, were from the European countries but a lot of those folks you know, would go to this place in Florida. Uh, so, you know, first of all, it was a blast, right? You're, you're, you're hanging out with some of the best windsurfing Olympic candidates in the world, but, you know, you're going out every day. Uh, so there was one summer that I pretty much spent the entire time, um, you know, with some of the best sailors, you know, in the country and, and some international sailors going out every day, right? Practicing starts, practicing wow. you know, various, you know, all the various different maneuvers that you're going to do on a race. Um, and, and then coming back and, you know, typically we had someone with video where, you know, you, you grab your dark and stormy, you grab your beer, you sit down on the couch and, you know, you, you have a conversation. And, you know, I think that's one thing that, you know, has really been pervasive in my viewpoint over the years of, of trying to learn. Uh, yeah, I think you interviewed Ray Wolf maybe last week, who, you know, is a, is a wealth of knowledge and him and I you know, just met each other a year or two ago. We, we get along great because we share, right? Like we share what we, what we learn. And I will say, I'm um, usually for the last two years since he joined the fleet, I'm trailing him the majority of the time. I'm happy when I'm ahead of him. Um, but, you know, sitting down and having these conversations with the better sailors and, you know, getting your ego, putting your ego aside and realizing that, you know, there's always 
opportunities to learn. Um, yeah, we we actually when we went up this year uh, up to New England before we did Block Island Race Week, we decided since we were up there, we were going to do New York annual regatta, which I've never done before. And if if you haven't done it or any of the folks that are listening, what a fun experience for three days of sailing in Newport and just like there was an around the island race where there must have been 14 starts. And, you know, there were J70s to 12 meters to Bellamonte that are all racing around you. Like it, it was absolutely phenomenal. But, you know, Ray was actually doing race committee for that regatta, but he didn't have that responsibility for the Friday around the island race. And three months before we went up there, I was like, hey, Ray, we're going up. You know, any chance you might want to race with us? Um, so I was actually able to get Ray, who, you know, uh, has a place up in Newport and sails there a lot. I mean, he sails with Gamecock and a lot of some of the best sailors up there. Uh, so from a local knowledge perspective and also just a, you know, a J105 perspective was just this phenomenal opportunity to get someone on a boat I could learn from. And I actually had kind of half of my crew and half of Ray's crew that joined for that race and you know, just really got to learn a lot of the intricacies of you know, his philosophies from a local knowledge perspective, but you know, just also listening to his communication style with some of his other crew members that happen to be on our boat that you know, I'm friends with as well. It just really opened my eyes up to you know, how different boats communicate differently, how their positions you know, might be a little bit different in the way you know, a, a mainsail trimmer in one boat might only be trimming the main, where in other times they're, you know, they're helping the jib trimmer in certain aspects. It was just a real eye opener for me. And yeah, I think those are the opportunities when we when we have the ability to find someone and either join their boat or for them to join yours and just see a different perspective. It really opens your eyes up to, you know, being flexible and starting to realize that there's other ways to do things that may be better than what you've done for years. Yeah, I, I love what you said there about um putting your ego on the side, right, and learning from others. I think that that's what I'm picking up from everybody. And it is a, it's certainly a sport that can really damage your ego when things go wrong. So I think it's, you got to put that to one side and, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes learning from others at our, I say our age is sometimes, you know, is, is quite hard, but I think that's, that's what you're saying there is very well, well taken. Um, Hey, I want to move on to, um, just to talk to you a little bit about what do you think have been have been or are sort of key success success factors for you you know i think about things like you know having the right mindset the right obviously the right, the right equipment yeah you know doing the right preparation and having the right crew and so on um is there anything else or any of those there that you you think particularly a, a, a vital sort of success factors for you over the over the years uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone has a different viewpoint of where they, you know, kind of found the success or that trajectory that that kind of brings you to the next level. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's any anything surprising of what I'm going to say, but you know, over the years, and I learned this from that first boat I sailed on, right, where where my friend Jack Buzzy said. I shouldn't be driving my own boat, but I'm going to play this game like baseball and I'm going to put the right person in the right position in every spot. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, and I think that that's absolutely key and you need to make sure that you are doing that. And if it's not working right, you need to be able to address that and, and figure out you know, how to put the right people in the right positions. I mean, that's key. Uh, you know, as far as I think boat prep, I've always been very anal in regards to boat prep. Like I, you know, will never go to a regatta without a boat that can't, I personally believe can't win. Right. Like I, I just, the amount of time, the money, the effort that we all spend in this sport. Like if, you know, if, if I needed to downsize to a different boat to be able to afford to get it to the line to win, I'm going to do that. Mm. Um, I just, I don't want to get to the line knowing that, you know, for whatever reason, the bottom isn't smooth. The, you know, I've got older sails, uh, you know, whatever that may be. Like, I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm bringing the boat and I'm bringing the right weapon to try to win. I don't want to have any excuses there. And, you know, just to, a little bit of a background when I, when I joined the 105 fleet, uh, like I, I actually never drove a boat with an asymmetrical. Like, that was completely and utterly new to me. I was always a symmetrical sailor. Um, knew very little about the J105. Uh, I bought a boat that I won't go into all the history, but it was actually a boat from the Naval Academy that they had for a while. And 
they definitely put this boat away, rode it hard and put it away wet (laughs) for about 10 or 15 years. I mean, it was a rough looking boat. Uh, And luckily it was a COVID winter. And, uh, you know, after work and weekends, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot to do back then. So I spent about 400 hours in the first winter that I owned that boat, ripping it apart. Hmm. Uh, you know, sanded the deck down, pulled everything off the deck, repainted the deck, pulled the entire interior out, redid the interior, redid the bottom, like basically took a boat that was close to not having a resale value and, and, and putting it, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And like, I've done that with other boats as well. And I, you know, what it does is it, it, it makes you realize every inch of the boat. Right. There's not an inch of the boat that I wasn't aware of. Uh, You know, a lot of things that I learned along the way, you know, where were the soft areas that needed to be fixed? Yeah, there was just and then when you're doing that and you're replacing items, you're you're forced to talk to other 105s. Right. You're forced to go on a sailing anarchy and start searching and gear anarchy and fix it anarchy. And like just having a full understanding of the platform that you have and putting it all back together is a huge opportunity where you really get to understand the weapon that you have underneath you. Right. And, and I think that that's a huge part of the process of being competitive. Uh, so I would put those two things at the very top of the list, right? You, obviously you need a phenomenal crew. You need a crew that works together, communicates together, but is really in the right positions. And, you know, you need to have a platform that's ready to win. And, you know, you can make all the mistakes in the world from, you know, having terrible starts to bang in the corner to, you know, having a terrible douse, whatever that may be. But at the end of the day, like I look at, you know, I've, we've all had bad races, right. And we've had bad seasons. And at the end of the day, like if I come off the water and say, man, we got our ass kicked and I have no idea why, like that'll drive me crazy. But if I can come off the water and I, and I can come up with it, an idea, whether that be sitting down with the team, talking to competitors, or just knowing what where the areas are that we screwed up. Like, okay, well, that's just an opportunity for finding a way to get better in that area and focusing on that area and and doing a better job next time. But like those moments where you just go, I don't know. Like those are the areas where if you can't figure it out, you better have a very good conversation with your competitors and your people on your boat to figure it out because that is just not a good position to be in, and really just lends to getting frustrated, which. Yeah, we all get frustrated. It's a frustrating sport, but you got to get over that and, and find the wins and being frustrated. Uh, Doug, that, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. That's really, uh, really, really insightful. Uh, one thing I'm taking away from you, you know, at the beginning about getting to the to the line, it seems like you want to make sure that what you can control, you have controlled, and um, and you know, you can't control the wind, you can't control the action of competitors, but the things that you can control, your boat equipment, crew tuning that sort of thing you might want to make sure that those are as absolutely no doubt i think that's really interesting insight into how how do you uh how you prepare for a race and how you think about it yeah i mean to give another example right there there's you know conversations over the last couple of years of you know a bottom prep and bringing boats to certain folks that can do grand prix bottoms and make them perfect and and you know and, and you know there's obviously an advantage to that right and yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, there's you know a, a local here in Annapolis that's well known you know for those types of projects of you know making bottoms perfect, and I actually yeah I called him up and I said, listen, like I'm interested in what you can do, but I don't really know what that means, but like I'm just not going to take my boat out of the water and write you a check and say make my boat fast. Like I need to understand what I have. And what you would do. So literally two Fridays ago, I called up a couple of marinas and got my boat pulled out for a short haul and scheduled this guy to come over. And, you know, we spent an hour going over the boat and, you know, with a straight edge and, you know, looking at my keel, looking at my rudder, you know, looking at, you know, all the aspects that are underneath the boot line and explaining to me what I had, right? Like I personally didn't know. Is has my boat been templated? Is my rudder and keel templated or not? Like I was crossing my fingers that they were, but what I found out very quickly is it's not, right? But like that's the kind of way I go into the mind frame of like, I don't want what they can do to make it better. What are some of the things that I can do on my own from a DIY perspective? And what are some of the things that are way over the top of my head? And then come up with a plan to address it. 
Uh, so, you know, just kind of figured I'd throw out kind of like a real life example of the last couple of weeks of like kind of the way my mind at least kind of thinks through it. And I think sometimes my mind might go a little too in depth <laughs> and, and maybe just sometimes take it a little bit less serious, but like I need to understand what I've got in order to figure out where to go. I suspect that you can't get too deep into this. It's such a sport of seconds and inches and millimeters that, that I think that all those things add up to make a, to make a difference clearly. All right, let's move on. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, I want to ask you this question. Is there a leg of the course that you that you think you excel at, the, the sort of leg that you're really looking forward to, um, whether it's downwind, upwind, or reaching, whatever it is? Or, yeah. And also, is the one that you suck at? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there isn't, by the way. Unfortunately, but. I would love to say that I'm this brilliant sailor off wind and can understand every shift and know what's coming, which, you know, I've sailed with people that somehow have that miraculous ability to see it. Unfortunately... It's not me. Um, yeah, I think it goes back to our earlier conversation around, you know, my windsurfing background and, and being able to, you know, really focus on the downwind you mm. know, side of it. And I, and I think yeah, you know, you particularly, said that. Yeah. particularly from an asymmetrical perspective, you know, even though a J105 is nothing like a, a windsurfer, you know, a lot of times the, you know, the idea of, okay, you know, if it is blowing Two weeks ago, we were out there, right? It was blowing 25 to 30. I yeah. know everyone says the J105 can't get on a plane. I think all of us that were out there know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, right. You know, but the reality is, is like it, it might not be a 22-pound windsurfer, but at the end of the day, the idea of, you know, soaking low, going high, you know, gaining – you know, gaining the apparent win, those are all things that, you know, are just natural from a windsurfing perspective that, you know, you're not turning the helmet all to do it, right? But it's just this natural connection with the board, your feet, your hands and the sail. And yeah, I think that has really, you know, really helped me in the kind of the downwind space. But like I said, man, I, I, the, the gains are really on the upwind side. And I, and I wish I could say that, you know, windsurfing helped me on the upwind side, but it, it definitely hasn't. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing that I've seen from a 105 perspective is, you know, and this is what I was even talking to sailmakers when I just bought the boat and you know had basically the worst the Navy could give me in sails and knew that those weren't going to get me around the race course. You know, I was talking to sailmakers, and the one thing that became very clear right away was when we were talking about, you know, if I could buy three or four sails in that first year, what should I focus on? And what continued to come back from the sailmakers and some of the competitors is, you know, on a J105 you need to be at that top mark in the top four or five because the passing lanes going downwind with asymmetrical J105s are very, very limited, right? You're either banging a corner to pass. Uh, you know, there's passing lanes at every every turn mark, right, of course, and positioning yourselves there and maybe wing on winging in particular areas, you know, to, to get an advantage, you know, but at the end of the day, what became very clear is, you know, it might be better to have, you know, a light jib and a, and a medium jib because, like at the end of the day, having a three or four year old spinnaker, you're not going to lose as much than being able to get off the line fast, being able to get your keel working as quickly as possible, get up to speed. And, you know, it's obviously you, you look brilliant when you're in the in the lead. Right. It's you know, it's a little bit easier to cover and, and makes you look a lot smarter. But, uh, you know, the, the key is really getting off the line and uh, and that upwind side of upwind side of the uh, the race course. So I know I know ask you something. You you brought something up that I'm really curious about, which is wing on wing. So um, I uh, I've been you know occasionally uh, over this year and it's our first year. Um, you know the crew has said uh, like on Sassy, let's go wing on wing. So we we tried it wing on wing. We're sailing by the lee slightly. I hate that because it feels so slow because you there's seems to be no sort of apparent wind action at all. Just, just curious about your thoughts. Do you do you ever do wing on wing? For me, it feels like that's you know I'm so I much. Do, and and I'll be the first to admit I am not great at it. Um, yeah, a, a couple quick stories on that one. So when we first started sailing on the boat, a very good friend of mine, Henry Filter, who's a phenomenal J seventy sailor, Velvet twenty four sailor. Um, yeah, just great local knowledge guy. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have him on our boat on a lot of Wednesdays and some of our weekend races, but he came from the J70 class. And as soon as I bought the 105, the first thing he said is, Doug, this is three years ago. He's like, not many boats, if any here, have figured it out yet. And I think that that's a move that the good boats are going to start learning in the next year or two, and it's going to be a game changer. 
Um, you mean wing on wing? Wing on wing. Huh. Yep. Um, and I say that I mentioned the seventy classes because obviously the seventies, like they're they're wing on wing in a lot downwind. Mm. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on seventy sailing by any means, but obviously there's clear conditions where they're all doing it, and it, and it's a huge advantage. Um, and then we saw Good Trade come into the fleet two and a half, two years ago, and you know Peter and his team are very very good seventy sailors, and you know guess who was trying to wing on wing the first two times they were out there. Peter Bowie and team, right? So, you know, I, I think there's definite advantages to it. Um, I also see Ray Wolf doing it consistently. I have not been able to sail the boat well enough to be able to use it as a consistent basis going downwind. Um, what I have been able to do is it is a huge advantage when you're coming into a downwind finish or a downwind yeah. mark. And yeah. you want to be able to flip the main over and be able to, you know, to be able to have a lower angle. Um, you know, I, I also find sometimes if you're rounding the first, you know, you go around the windward mark and you go into a jibe and potentially you don't let the main come over and you just kind of say like if it's blowing, you know, over 10 or 12 knots, you sail as long as you can wing on wing until it gets wonky or you feel uncomfortable and then you'll kind of let it flop over. Right. And it's just kind of a late jive on the mainsail. And I, I found that, you know, particularly good as well. Hmm. Um, I also think, I think there's two pieces to the, it, it cannot be choppy. Number one, it has to be fairly smooth. It also can't be very shifty. And I actually yeah. was chatting with Ray Wolf about this literally on Sunday after frostbite racing because he was he kind of learned that at North Americans where he was saying it was so shifty that I like my my impression is is that he would lose the shoot once in a while because it was just so shifty he wouldn't be prepared for it and the boats that were reaching back and forth could adjust to those shifts better and be able to take a little bit more advantage and control over it. So mm. you know I think number one it has to not be that shifty it cannot be choppy. And you know what? If you're way in the lead and you've got clear air, it's way easier to when you're out by yourself to be able to do that than if you're in a congested group of boats where there's, you know, there's wind shadows as well. So there's times to play it. There's times to not. I don't think the 105 class has figured it out entirely yet, uh, but there's definitely times where it'll, it's a huge advantage. And my personal opinion with my skill set, I'm not going to try and do it on a downwind leg just to do it. But if there's certain if there's certain scenarios from a tactical perspective to get away from a group of boats or to position myself for a mark, you can make some huge gains up with wing on wing. Yeah, I don't like it for many reasons. And again, you know, I'm a my skills are pretty nascent at this. It 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 really removes your maneuverability. So if you're in a crowd, it's right. um you know any deviation from um the the course and suddenly you're jibing you know um uh so it, it, i find it quite hard work okay um which is also good from a, an offensive perspective too right if you got someone who's wing on wing in like the, you can really make their day not very good very easily <laughs> <laughs> which is something to consider you know if you got guys around you that are doing that yeah that's true we should we should have done that on on, sun, on sunday all right so so doug we talked a lot about um uh downwind actually which was which is great um, I was going to ask you, what, what's the most important phase of a race and why? Uh, yeah, I, I think in my opinion, I mean, it's the start. Yeah. 100% the start at yeah. all times. I, I forget the exact phrase, right? But you hear it all the time, right? The the only time where you could win or lose a race in three seconds is the start. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> yeah, it, I'm it, familiar it's, with that. It's so critical. And, you know, it... it, it when we we actually went out on the J105 for the first time we ever sailed on the boat about three years ago, and and one of the sailmakers was out there, North Sails with Alan Triune, um, and they were doing kind of just a, a day where we did multiple starts, and then we'd all go upwind and you know, just practice upwind. And this was after I owned a J30 for like four years, and after the multiple starts and the different upwind legs where we were kind of sail testing with with other boats, uh, you know, Alan came up to me. And he said, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is, is your boat seems pretty fast. He said, the bad news is, is you are not starting the boat and you need to learn how to start all over again. Hmm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right? I've raced my whole life. What do you mean? I don't know how to start. And what he clearly showed in the videos that, you know, that afternoon was the absolute requirement in these boats to not get to the line too early, but for like the last eight to 10 seconds, 
you really should be going towards the line on a close haul course like you're racing upwind and mm. ha- being at absolute full speed. And I know that sounds simple and everyone would say, yeah, of course, right? But how many of us, when you get into a starting line, you know, you're constantly pushing it, you're getting up there early, now you're trying to turn downwind and now you're sliding sideways at two seconds to go. And, you know, if you watch videos of the top boats that race, like, and you watch that first 12 to 20 seconds after the start, right? It's the, it's those guys that eight to 10 seconds ahead of time, you know, yeah, maybe they were aiming towards the pin and you watch the guys at the pin, like guys at the pin aren't wiggling around like guys at the boat, right? The guys that are winning the pin know how to win a pin, right? And at 10 to 20 seconds ahead of time, they're full speed at the pin. Right. And, and, you know, at that point, you just watch them leap forward when, you know, they're at full speed. And I think that's like, especially even like our Wednesday nights, we're so lucky and blessed in the Annapolis area to have, I don't know, 28, 30 boats on a Wednesday night. Like those, those starts are crazy, right? There are North Americans that don't have as many boats as that from time to time. Um, You know, but you watch a Wednesday night and man, like the start is I got to say, most it's 70, 80% of the race. Yeah, Ray had an interesting sort of story about that when he goes to the to national championships, he knows what starting strategy he's going to use because he knows that the, you know, what the other top sailors are going to do, or, or just there's some rationale there that he can spot. When it comes to the Wednesday, Wednesday night, he has to really sort of look around because of the total unpredictability of some of the people in the race, probably us actually, that makes them have a different, different uh, uh, have to think about things differently. So I'm curious to that end. Um, do you do you have a favorite starting strategy, or, or does do you just go into um, uh, the race every time thinking, okay, this is completely different, the wind's different, the different, you know? The- yeah, I mean, my favorite my favorite strategy is you know. Hit, hit the line, hit the first shift and, you know, cover the fleet. Right. That sounds, it sounds super easy. Um, and, and I got to tell you, like, I, I think, I, I think I was probably a much better starter in some of the other fleets. I, I personally felt like, feel like I've struggled quite a bit in the 105 fleet starting. Um, and, and I'm still not a hundred percent sure why I, I think my first year, I, I know it's hard to admit in sailing, but I was a little intimidated with 30 boats on a line when you're 8,000 pound boats, and, you know, 35 foot long. And uh, it, it intimidated me a little bit. And I, and, you know, at points I held back. Um, yeah. I think, I think I learned a few things this summer sailing with some, with some really good sailors. And one of the strategies on one of the regattas that I sailed on was we came in three boat lengths. And if you have a pro start, right. Yeah. Whatever that number comes into meters, but yeah, three boat lengths to leeward of the line at like three and a half minutes to go. And we were at the leeward of the pin at about three and a half minutes to go. And I think part of that strategy is just to be consistent, right. And make sure that your crew is ready from a a perspective of having the jib out, if you want the jib out, if it's light air or not, and and just kind of having that scenario of, okay, at four minutes, we want to be three boat lengths, downwind of the pin, on port, go to the boat, Mm -hmm. right? And and, we kind of just followed that mantra throughout the race. And there were some races that we knew the boat might've been a little favored or others that the pin wasn't favored, but that position gave us the ability to make a decision of where we wanted to go. Um, So I kind of liked that idea you know, I could also tell you there are specific boats in, in the Chesapeake here that are typically the boats that do quite well that I would, from my perspective over the last three years, they start at the pin 80% of the time. Hmm. And it's pretty obvious. Like you, you watch some of these, some of the boats, it's, you know, it, it's Ray, it's Mirage. Uh, there's a few others as well, but you know, those are boats that typically do really well. You know, and at the end of the day, if you're starting and, you know, from a current perspective and a wind perspective, it doesn't always make sense to start at the pin. But the reality is in this large of a fleet, you know, a third of the third of the boats are going to get pinched out or, you know, for some odd reason, need to need to tack out. And if you are that lured boat, you have control of the fleet and you're always the first one to be able to react to the wind and the wave conditions before anyone else. If you have anyone to lure of you, they're dictating you. And a lot of times that pin and start, and it's not always easy to get to, but if it's even slightly unadvantaged or advantaged, 
having the ability when you want to put your bow down and go for speed because there's chop coming, you can do that, but no one else can. And I think that that is a huge advantage. There's another really good sailor up in Long Island, uh, Damon Emery, uh, who now owns a boat called Warlock. Um, my understanding is like, he's never not at the pin, <laughs> no matter what. Um, and that's you know a lot of boat strategies. And you know it does seem to work more often than not. Doesn't always, but more often than not, it's it's a huge advantage. And it's that I'm guessing that that is that if you're if you're three and a half minutes below the pin and then you're on port tack and then you make that final final turn to approach the line. Um, if you're if you're aiming for the pin, you've got a lot of room there or around about. You've got a lot of room there to accelerate, pick a spot, and and turn up when you you know you sort of control your own timing. Um, and I'm guessing at least a heavy, slow, accelerating boat. So you've got more of a sort of a runway, I'd imagine, that uh, helps. Yeah, I, I think you do. I mean, the reality is, yeah, there's sometimes where, yeah, there's 20 boats that are all trying to win that pin, right? But the reality is the people that do that start more often are going to have a better chance of timing that line better than the ones that do it one out of every eight races. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, let's move on. This is a fascinating conversation. Of, of course, I, I know you're you're a, a bit of a fan of the, the longer distance races, Annapolis and Newport, and so on. Is, is that your preference? Do you prefer long distance or inshore around the buoys is um, is where you like to be? Any any preference? Well, yeah, I, I will say up until about a year and a half or so ago, I was a hundred percent a buoy racer. I like going out. I like coming in. I like, you know, if you're winning the afterglow at the party, you know, if you're not winning, <laughs> hey, maybe you have a few more more beers with your friends and drown your sorrows. But, you know, for the most part, I've always been kind of the let's go out on a, on a day, do Woodward Lewards and and, uh, and have a good time. And, and I still do prefer that. Um, however, this year, uh, about a year and a half ago, we decided we were going to you know, go up to do Block Island Race Week. And as I mentioned earlier, we did a race up in Newport a week earlier. And I was kind of looking at all the schedules and said, you know what? If I'm going to go up to Newport anyway, there's this Annapolis to Newport race that's a week and a half earlier. Like, why don't I just race up if I've got to go up? So I decided to do it. And a lot of people thought I was absolutely nuts for trying to take a 1993 J105 uh, up to Newport and, and uh, into the Atlantic, and uh, it proved that I, I, I it proved that I was a little bit nuts because we actually <laughs> didn't make it. But and I'll hit on that in a minute. But I will say I've only done one other Annapolis to Newport race on a friend's boat, and it was beautiful weather. Probably one of the reasons why I thought it was a great idea to take a 105 up. Uh, I, I, I mean, I had a good time with my friends, but like, it wasn't something that I was like, man, I got to do this again. But for whatever reason, I decided, all right, this was going to be the chance for me to get my boat ready and go do it. And I will say like, it's a lot of effort, right? To get a boat compliant with all of the offshore rules and, you know, taking the offshore sailing classes and first aid and uh, figuring out sail inventories that are obviously different than windward lewards. It, it was a lot. Um, but I was dedicated to do it. And once I kind of got that got to the point of, all right, the boat is ready to go. We've done all of our due diligence. And I had a phenomenal group of crew of, of five crew that were going to go do this race. Like I was all in, like I could not wait to do this race. Um, so, you know, unfortunately for us, there was a huge nor'easter that showed up literally three hours before we got uh, to Hampton Roads and got into the ocean. And the majority of the first start quit the race before they went out in the ocean. Um, with my personality, I knew that if I quit before I went out, I always would have said I would have made it. So we decided we, we ventured out 12 miles and it was gusted up to 35 to 40. The period of the waves was just absolutely insane. And to make a long story short, uh, we lost. A lot of our electronics, there was just too much water covered the boat. And we decided, you know, it was probably better to, to not risk our lives and, and head in. And we, we came back. But uh, it was a phenomenal experience. Like the stories that we're going to have of that challenge uh, will last forever. The bonds that we made with the guys that were there were amazing. And 
you know, I will, I will say it again. I know people are going to say I'm absolutely nuts. I am going to try and do it again in two years <laughs> and we're going to try and get to Newport. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I am starting to get a little bit more interested in the distance sailing. It's just a very different dynamic, right? It, it's about the, it's about the long play, not the short play. It's about having your boat have the right sail inventory for the race, understanding the different sail inventories, understanding how to adjust your ratings. It's a totally different dynamic than what we do here on a, on a weekend level, but it was, it was something different and it, and it got me a little bit excited about trying to do something different that I've never done before. And it was fun. It would have been a heck of a lot better if we would have been able to get up to, to Newport and finish, but uh, maybe some other year. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm following right now the, I can't, my French pronunciation is terrible, that Route de Rum um, with uh, the Amoka class. Uh, Pip Hare is a English woman sailor who's got a very good sort of social media following and uh, just just watching her bouncing up and down on this Amoka in freezing weather. But then as they get towards Guadeloupe, um, you know, starting to... Uh, sunshine's coming out they sort of pull the covers off you think oh yeah i could i could i could do i could probably do that but i remember i think you wrote an email to the class to just advise on uh the number of modifications you'd make to a j105 in order to sort of survive i think that was that was you it was a really daunting list of the water's going to come in here the water's going to come down there you need to change this and block that I, I read it you know avidly but i was thinking oh my god there's a hell of a lot of things here that that sound pretty difficult to do yeah i it, it, well i mean I, yeah there was a list to get to get to the to get to the race right and then once we decided that you know it wasn't for us and coming in like literally like within two or three days of like if I don't write this list down, I'm going to forget half the things that I that I realized, yeah. right? Like, I'll give you one simple example. And I'm not a distance sailor, right? But, like, I happened to find a guy who was selling a tri-sail at a storm gym that was actually for a J-105. They were never used. Got a good deal on them. Super excited. I was able to get these two sails. And, yeah, we put them up on the dock. We did everything that, in my mind, we should do, right? Did they fit? How, do we all know how to put them up? We did all of that, right? And then we get out there. And we're, we decided to turn around. And at that point, we had, a, we had a reefed main and a number four up, but we needed to put the storm sail up to go back up the Chesapeake. And, and I guess I, I still kind of question why the owner and old, probably one of the oldest people on the boat was up at the bow at the time. <laughs> uh, and my, one of my younger guys was driving the boat, telling, you know, yelling and screaming at me on the bow. But I, I, was, I was trying to, you know, <laughs> we, we took the number four down and we were trying to put the storm jib up. And, the storm jib came with shackles, not quick connects. And the simplest thing, right? Like I'm up on the bow of a boat. It's blowing 40. It's getting dark. It's freezing cold. I'm barely holding on. Like I literally like have my legs around the, the roller furling. I'm like rodeo horse in the, the boat. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious if it, we would have saw this video. We're like trying to duck in underneath shifts so I could have a moment to put it up. And I'm trying to like connect a shackle to a shackle. Hmm. Right. Like something yeah. so simple. Right. And, you yeah. know, that was one of the things was like put two quick connects so you don't have to deal with shackles. But like what a simple little thing that you just, you know, when it's blowing eight knots at the dock and you're picturing this beautiful day and you're practicing with your storm sails, you just don't think of. Right. And there were just so yeah. many of those tiny little things that, you know, were in that list of 30 of like, hey, if you're going to do this, don't start from scratch. <laughs> you use the areas that I learned and, and made a mistake on. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. That'd have been terrified. Um, all right, let's. let's um, I want to move on to um, your leadership style. So, Doug, how would you describe your your leadership style? I know it's difficult for you to probably say, but how do you think other people would describe it? In, in, in... Um, it it's a tough question, and yeah, it's always kind of hard to kind of talk about your personality and, and your leadership style. Um, yeah, I, I think in in general. Um, most people that have ever sailed with me would, would say that I'm not a yeller. You know, of course there's always that occasion, right. <laughs> Where you, you just need to yell. Um, uh, but you know, not a yeller whatsoever for the most part. Like it just, that never seems to help whatsoever. Um, uh, you know, on like when we're racing in the winter, like I I'm constantly trying to move people around in different positions. So, you know, just everybody is a much more well-rounded sailor. Uh, you know, like there's even times on Wednesdays we have, uh, you know, 
really good sailor, uh, Billy Martin, who uh, was a college sailing coach, uh, works for Quantum Sales. We've been lucky to have him for the last two years on Wednesdays and, um, you know, really good at trimming the jib. But, you know, there are times where I might have a new person that, you know, hopefully will will continue on as a crew member. You know, and there's been Wednesdays where, you know, I've literally sat folks down and said, like, Billy, like, I know you can trim the jib probably better than anybody here, but today I need you to be the coach, right? I need you to teach Johnny what you're seeing when it comes to when we're cheating, you know, what you're looking at in regards to the leech and how to, you know, make sure that the leech profile on the jib and the main are looking the same. So like really leveraging the skill sets of the people on the boat to be able to teach the other folks on how, on how to, you know, become a better learner skill set that they haven't. Mm. Um, yeah. I would say, although unfortunately my wife has not raced on the boat over the last year or two for various reasons. Um, yeah. We've raced together for, you know, 10, 15 years and, you know, husband and wife teams, you know, are typically fairly rare. <laughs> and, and a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't know if I want to sail that boat with <laughs> you that are always yelling and bickering. And um, yeah, I think you know, we got along great. Right. And, and I, I think, you know, the reality of that was, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's easier to take it out on the person you're closest with, but at the end of the day, like we're out there for fun <laughs> Yes, we want to win, but at the end of the day, there needs to be a perspective that's shared within the entire crew to allow like my leadership style, I think, to to work, right? And the reality is, is if there's like someone on the boat that, you know, is, you know, is an extreme yeller or, you know, just an extreme of anything, right? Like I don't particularly, that doesn't work well with my leadership style. So, you know, I want to have a group of people that, you know, when when it's time to focus and listen to the experts around them, and it doesn't have to be me, the driver or the tactician, but there's moments where when you're going downwind, right? Like there's a huge difference going downwind when you're near someone where the tactician is explaining what to do versus the jib trimmer, right? And being able to have people on the boat that don't, that are not overwhelming that, you know, can literally say, okay, my boat, Right. And, you know, the tactician says my boat. And then we're listening to that tactician because there's boats around us and there's tactical reasons of why we need to make decisions that the person trimming the spinnaker isn't going to know because they shouldn't be looking back. They need to be looking at the curl of the jib. Mm. Right. So having a, you know, building a crew, my leadership style, I guess is what I'm getting at is my leadership style is building a set of crew members that all work well together and are able to identify that everyone on the boat can contribute something significant in the right time and manner. And you need to be able to listen to them. Obviously I have my own strategy of what I want to do as an owner is driving. Um, but you know, there are races sometimes where, you know, I'll take on a tactician perspective and then there's other races where I'll say, I am driving the boat. I am not going to look around. I am going to just focus on making this boat as fast as possible. You know, and again, that you know, it depends on the people and the skill sets around. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question. But yeah, I think that's kind of you know, the leadership style has to do with the people that you surround yourself with. And then you can be a good leader based on that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely answers the question. And not only about your leadership style, but also the sort of culture that you the sort of winning culture that you have created on your your boat and boat. So I think that's uh, that's great. Great learning. Uh, uh, for everybody uh, listening to that, so uh... and, and what I love to see, you know, like when you have a guest person on the boat, or you know, someone that brings a skill set that maybe isn't on the boat all the time. Like uh, we raced up in a race up in New Jersey uh, this summer. Is a good a friend of mine, Jeff Perini, very good J seventy sailor, uh, sails with a lot of pros. So like you know, he's sailing with some of the best guys in the world. So, you know, he's going to learn a lot from those good guys. And yeah, I had a younger, younger crew member from the Naval Academy who sailed with us at Block Island and really good sailor, uh, a lot of time on the water over the last four years, but like when we got on the boat and I introduced the two of them and, you know, illustrated the value that Jeff brought to the table, like without me explaining to the younger crew member, uh, his name was Trey, like within the first 10 minutes on the boat, Trey was trying to learn as much as possible from Jeff, right? Like he literally said like, 
He's like, yell at me like the pros yell at you. Like, I want to know exactly what they're telling you when you're trimming a sale. Hmm. Right. And, and of course, Jeff was like, um, if I do that, you'll cry. So I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not going to do that to you. But at the end of the day, you know, seeing crew members that, you know, see a skill set that they could be better at and watching them ask the questions to be better. Like, that's when you sit back as a leader of a boat and an owner of a boat and say, like, I found my team, right? Mm-hmm. I found my people, right? And because they're all, they all want to learn. They all want to bring the boat to the next level. And they all realize that we can all learn something. So like, that's a key piece for me. I want to see my crew constantly asking questions, finding people that are better than them and being a, a vested team member of improving, right? We all need to improve. Mm. No, that's great. Uh, all right, Doug, and I've kept you for a while here. So uh, last question really is about what do you do in the off season? Do you, do you pack up the boat and do other things or do you still practice, get out there? Um, or is it more of a sort of a get it on the hard, do maintenance and then put it back on the water in the spring? Just just curious. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, part of me would love to take it out of the water and let it dry out and get a little lighter over the winter time. Um <laughs> But financially, like it's easier to keep it in the water and yeah, saves you a couple thousand dollars a year, probably equivalent to another sale that you might want the following year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really enjoy frostbite sailing. Like, you know, again, like we are so lucky to be here in Annapolis. Like you, you, we mentioned earlier, we had our first frostbite this past Sunday. And I forget, I think there were 17 or 18 J105s out there. Yeah, there were. Like for a frostbite, like. That is just insane, right? So in in my mind, yes, we're all going out to have fun and we may have a beer in our hands and you know, some might have eight people on the boat and some other might have three. But at the end of the day, again, like I want to be able to leverage this opportunity of racing against 18 boats and learning, right? So, you know, if that is, hey, I have a new starting instrument, right? I just got a pro start and I haven't really figured out how to use it. Like we're gonna we're gonna test that out over the winter so that when May when May's here and Ludregat is here, like we're good at it. Right. Yeah. There's opportunities where, you know, I'll hand the helm off to various people just for them to get a better understanding of what it's like, right? When if a bow person can drive a boat every once in a while and see from a totally different perspective, um, the viewpoint of the sales, right? Like it's just a different viewpoint and being able to understand what we see versus what they see. So we use the winner to hold the crew together. We use the winner to potentially find new crew members where if they're interested, it's a perfect opportunity to say, hey, come on out, right? We're, we're kind of having a good time. It's not super serious, but it allows us to identify if their personalities gel. Uh, you know, like these boats, you know, fortunately on a 105, on a 35 foot boat, it's not like a J35. You know, you could race with five to six people, typically six. But at the end of the day, yeah, six people, but over a course of I don't know, 15 Wednesdays and 14, 15 weekend regattas. Like, I mean, I got a bench of 20, 20, 25 people that I'm reaching out to to make sure that my boat can get on the line. Mm. So the winner for me sometimes is also finding new people and, and seeing if they're a match before, instead of trying to figure that out, you know, on a big regatta in May and going, ooh, that personality doesn't work well. And now, now it's not comfortable for anybody, right? Like it's not comfortable. It's never comfortable to say, hey, you're not a good fit for the boat, but also they might not have another boat to go to. So, yeah, we use winter racing to practice, put other people in different positions and find new crew. Mm. Really interesting. Really interesting. So, Doug, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate yeah. it. That was an amazing, uh, uh, amazing bit of content there for uh, those obsessed by sailboat racing. So, uh, um, not, not a not- problem at all. I, I appreciate you asking. And I mean, as I guess you could probably tell, I could talk sailing forever. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's, uh, if, if I'm not working and, you know, I, I, am thinking about how to make a boat faster. Like, yeah, it, my wife makes fun of me all the time. Like there'll be nights where I'm on my phone, like looking at pictures from regattas and like zooming into my competitors and looking at, you know, where they're, jib leads are and like I, i'm just constantly looking for at other boats to figure out like what are they doing differently is there a setup that's different so um always love talking sailing and you know i'm i'm just an average guy who was lucky enough to get on a boat at a young age and learn how to do it and 
happened to find an inexpensive 105 and put my heart and soul into doing it and have a great crew that we have a good time going out on the water. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, asking me to to share my experiences as well. Uh, there's plenty of people just like me that you know started out in one way or another and are just trying to be better. And the more we talk to people and the more you do things like this to glean a couple of things from various various skill sets around uh, the fleet. I think it's an awesome thing. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, you know, some of the other things, uh, some of the inter- interviews that you have. hear more of our conversations about racing sailboats make sure you subscribe to the sailfaster series wherever you get your podcasts or go to sailfaster.net to sign up and learn more thanks for listening and see you on the water